Welcome to Make Things That Matter, the podcast where we explore impactful products and the cultures that create them. I'm your host, Andrew Scottsko, and if I'm doing my job well, each episode of this show will help you to do meaningful work, make things that make things better, and have a great experience doing it. My guest in this conversation is Aisha Armstrong. Aisha has long experience in building and launching new data businesses, and specifically in helping service companies transition from selling time to selling products. Now, in this conversation, we zoom in specifically on the lessons she's learned in the trenches of helping to transform companies. We talk about three specific sticking points that come up when you're changing how your organization works and especially its business model. Those three things are forecasting, managing role transitions, and departmental power dynamics. If you're ready to be just a little more fearless in the face of change, please enjoy Aisha Armstrong. Aisha, welcome to the show. How are you today? I'm doing well, Andrew. Thank you. Yeah. Good to be here. Oh, it's so good to have you. Thanks for taking some time out of your day and spending it with me and our audience. So, you know, we're going to be covering a lot of ground in this conversation, particularly around some of the the tricky, thorny bits around how do you change an organization uh, and all of the the very, you know, the wonderfully messy human stuff that comes along with such a journey. But really quick, just for a bit of context, I'd love it if you could share with the audience a little bit of your journey, how how you got to where you are today and, and uh, found this as a particular focus. Sure. Yeah. So I grew up in Kansas, actually in a small town called Manhattan, Kansas. And uh, it was a great place to grow up. And then uh, I was the oldest of three ch- children. Um and I went to school in uh, Lawrence, Kansas, about 90 minutes down the road and ended up being a liberal arts major. Mm-hmm. So did not study engineering, uh, studied econ, but not math. Uh, and it, it ended up um, being the perfect background for what I ultimately went into, which was research. Hmm. Uh, so... You know, a lot of, I think, product leaders, you know, come out of um, backgrounds where, where they've built things. Mm-hmm. I, my background was really in researching. Mm. Uh, and so my, my first job out of college was as a research analyst for a company that was headquartered in Washington, D.C., doing market research uh, for their clients and looking at market opportunities, mm-hmm. uh, market sizing, customer needs, things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and ultimately that ended up being a springboard to product management. But again, like I said, not, not in terms of making things, but more in terms of, uh, researching. Hmm. No, I love that. And you know, my, one of my things here is that I I think there is no default path into product. Everyone has a weird version of their own thing. You know, like there's very few people I meet here. They're like, oh yeah, I was an engineer at Google. And then I switched into product and did the rotational program. And here I am. Uh, so I, I love that. What kind of research were you doing? You said market research, but like that's such a, you know, there's so many sort of sub sub parts of that. Did you have a specialty or a, a favorite thing that you carried forward into your product days? Yeah. So I started out doing research for large financial service institutions. So um, banks, insurance companies. And again, it was all around market opportunity. So they were looking to make new products uh, and trying to understand what were emerging consumer needs. And so that's the type of research that I did, which again, you can see like does start to make sense then that I went into product. Um, but yeah, I was looking for new market opportunities for new products for financial service institutions. 
Oh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And and I think also quite relevant to some of the topics we're going to be covering today, because there's many of those companies, those, those non-tech native companies, of which finance is a big one, uh, who are very much in the wheelhouse of the topics we're going to explore today. So I, I'm especially curious, though, we're going to start to shift here in just a second. But you know, now, if I understand it correctly, you're spending a lot of your time helping other organizations transform and really become product organizations. And, and that's whether they are, you know, a non-tech native of the kind you might expect, like a, like a finance company or even something far, even further afield of like a, a consulting company, like a, you know, an Accenture, a Deloitte, a, you know, fill in the blank here. I'm so curious though, like, what do you notice that, uh, connects the dots for those because I can imagine someone looking at them saying that they're, they're all the same because they're services companies trying to become product companies. But on the other hand, we, we know there's a lot more complexity than that. Yeah. I mean, fundamentally, it's about uh, thinking differently about how you make money and mm-hmm. the role that technology can play, not just in automating your back office, making your back office more efficient, but in how you deliver value through your products. Uh, or your services. And so it's those two things, business model transformation and the role of technology that make the needs of the companies that I work with, I think, different in kind than if we were just talking about new product innovation. Mm. Yeah. So let's, let's, let's zoom in on that because I, I think that's something I'm starting to see a lot more of as well. Um, I mean, even within sort of, let's call them tech native companies, you still have some of these spheres around business model transformation. For example, company I was working with very recently was making a big shift from a transactional to a subscription or a recurring business model. I'm sure that had probably a lot of the big fears that you see. So let's zoom in on that. Like, talk to me a little bit more about business model transformation. What are, you know, what are the big three fears that come up around that and and how do we start to deal with it? Yeah. So I think the first one, and you see this a lot with the example that you just gave, Andrew, is you change when you receive revenue. So rather than receiving revenue up front in a larger chunk, mm-hmm. um, you're exchanging that for smaller bits of revenue over a longer period of time. So customer lifetime value becomes much more uh, of an issue. And uh, it may have some, some really important impacts on things like cash flow, for example, that you have to think through. Uh, so that's that's kind of one fear is just how are we going to make this adjustment in terms of when we receive revenue? And that may result in behaviors uh, that I often see where people don't change because they'd rather get the revenue in the door, the larger uh, contract in the door now uh, than have any type of unpredictability around mm-hmm. whether or not mm-hmm. you'll continue to get that that annuity stream over time. No, that makes perfect sense. And it matches what I'm, I'm seeing as well. So let's talk a little bit more about that. Like, because, you know, I know in your book, you talk about innovation is sort of this heart of, you know, it's the first seed crystal that out of which this whole product organization can grow. And there's so much in that world of innovation itself, just in terms of like thinking about risk and abundance and unpredictability and, and the uncertainty of it all. Um, and so I feel like for, I feel like there's a weird dichotomy here. Because product people who are used to doing that work, like that's just sort of the water we live in and, and swim in. But I think we forget what it's like to not live in those waters and how scary that is for people who are used to, you know, very strict forecasts and having to hit those numbers. So how do you bridge that gap? Yeah. So one is, is just what you talked about, like naming the fears. 
So there's always fear around risk, unpredictability, uncertainty, and that that can happen in product innovation. It can really, quite frankly, happen in any type of organizational change. Uh, so that's important to get out on the table and, and name it. Uh, there's also fears of what are people going to think when I start saying no? Because the whole concept of going to a product and thinking about market segment needs is there are going to be some people whose needs you're not meeting, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And if you're in an organization where that's not a well-developed muscle, that can actually seem scary. And mm. that can be a real f- fear. It's not just, I don't know how to say no to a customer request. Like, I, I'm afraid to say no. Uh, and and that's, I think, another really important one to to name. And then you also mentioned uh, abundance thinking. And a big one that we see is is fear of cannibalization because oftentimes the organizations that we're working with are not sunsetting their legacy businesses. They're launching new tech-enabled products alongside their legacy businesses. And there's a real fear of cannibalization, uh, mm. whether it's a legitimate fear or not, uh, there is a fear. And that can really result in a lot of sabotage uh, for the new strategy if you're not careful. That makes sense. I'd love to explore, you know, I, I think this may take most of our time in this conversation, but there's sort of three areas this is as I'm listening to you that are pattern matching against the conversations I've had, let's say in the last two months, that I, I think would be very practical and useful for folks listening. Um, that is where I feel like a lot of the, the rubber meets the road in this conversation. So number one is, um, you know, it's around, it's driven by the unpredictability and the uncertainty. So I, I'd love to talk about forecasting, particularly at the executive level, because that's that's scary for people. Uh, secondly, I'd love to talk about what you just named, which is this transitioning, right? Transition, the transition model between, you know, what you're doing now and what you might do instead. And number three, I'd love to spend some time actually unpacking the dynamics of organizational change and change management, because my spidey sense, just from talking to a lot of product leaders lately, you know, folks who've spent their whole career in product effectively, they know that's like an important and big thing but they know they don't know how to do it. And so I think mm-hmm. to learn from someone like yourself would be such a gift. So I, how does that sound as a, as a trajectory here? Perfect. Okay, yes. great. So let's, let's dive into the, let's just get right into it here. Talk to me about, talk to me about forecasting because I remember sitting with a, 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 C, a C-suite about three weeks ago and watching this debate unfold at the table where the, pro- the head of product is going like, well, we can't tell you exactly when XYZ is going to be available. And the head of revenue going, are you freaking kidding me? And the CEO going, but I have to make this promise to investors. So how do, what do we do about this? Yeah. So usually when that happens, and this happens often, uh, is I talk about, well, what are leading measures, right? Mm-hmm. So what are indicators that we're tracking well, or what are indicators that we're not tracking well? And you know, people who've been in product for a while are used to thinking about underlying assumptions it's the same thing. It's like your forecast is based on a set of assumptions. So spending the time to really dig into and lay out what those assumptions are is an important part around everyone getting more confidence in the forecast. Um, You know, I will say, especially for a publicly traded company, like no forecast is not the right answer. (laughs) You can certainly... Uh, do some education with your investors around mm-hmm. unpredictability, um, 
And, and that's, you know, that's the role of the CEO and the head of IR to work on. Um, but, you know, we have to at least put some type of, for everyone internally, you know, when we're going to hit certain milestones and then make transparent, they are all those milestones and those, the timing for those milestones are based on a set of assumptions. Here are those assumptions. And then those assumptions can turn, can turn into, uh, indicators, you know, warning light indicators. Are we tracking well? Or are we not tracking well? Mm. Uh, so that's, that's typically how I address that. It seems like to do that. And, and I like that way of thinking, right? We're starting to unpack and, and make explicit the thought process so that we can at least all look at the same, you know, be on the same page and look at the same thing together. I guess the part that I, I'm trying to imagine myself in the seat of, you know, somewhere between a CEO and a CPO and how they might be grappling over this. And I'm imagining that, you know, a head of product might be saying, okay, look, we're, yes, we have these roadmaps and we are pushing towards these, not just deliverables, but really the, the business outcomes we want those deliverables to actually deliver. And the CEO going, I love that. And this feels extremely uncertain because you are telling me that I can't count on XYZ business outcome. And yet I have to make a promise to investors, whether you're a public company or a private company, you know, trying to raise a whatever series B. So let's, let's zoom in a little more on that. Like, how do we deal with that? Yeah. So in that situation, I would say we need to look at what are we hoping to learn through the milestones? So mm. even if we don't get the business outcome, what are the questions that we'll have answered? What are the hypotheses that we'll have formed or validated by that point? Uh, because you and I both know that we may run down a path and we may find out, mm-hmm. oh, you know, that was the wrong hypothesis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, but we have to say, okay, at that point in time, we will at least have an answer to this question or we will at least have validated or invalidated our hypothesis. So, um, again, we all need to be held accountable to outcomes, but the rate of learning and what you learn can be an outcome. Hmm. How do you attach, you know, because forecasts are, are fundamentally trying to make a, a promise about you're trying to we're trying to add some predictability to what is inherently unpredictable, in particular, you know, future revenue, essentially. So in that case, how do we how do you coach people to think about the essentially the financial value of that learning where they're saying, you know, I was trying to do a forecast with dollars on it, but now you're telling me, oh, we're learning. And I know learning's <laughs> good, but so, you know, I can't take learning to the bank yet. No, no. But I mean, you can stop spending money on things that aren't working. So that's that's one way. Um, you can identify new markets, new opportunities, new needs that you didn't previously see. Um, and th- that's another way. So I, I actually don't think it's that hard to translate mm. into financial results, but you may require, you know, being a little bit more creative in how you think about it. Yeah, yeah. So I'm super curious if you have an example you could walk me through of how this forecasting actually plays out in reality. And it also related to that is how the transition between offerings plays out in reality. You know, you mentioned earlier this example of a transactional model to a recurring model. Yeah. So um, and actually, a lot of our clients are dealing with this because, uh, again, we're primarily working with non-tech native uh, companies who are usually serve in the services industry. So making their money through arms and legs as opposed to product, let alone tech enabled product. And what they're trying to do is find more scale through technology and through standardization and also better revenue visibility through that, that 
business model transformation, for example, to go to a subscription uh, model. And usually what they need to think through is one, how do I make the investment in a way that um, is incremental so that we're not running down a path where perhaps there is a lot of uncertainty and committing you know, a large amount of resources up front um, and also degrading internal goodwill about the transformation, but we're still learning enough to test the concept. Uh, so that's where um, rapid prototyping uh, is very, very important. Uh, for these organizations so that they're releasing investment and resources as they learn more about the market. Uh, and they're giving themselves an out to stop spending money on something that perhaps there isn't a market need. Uh, in terms of dealing with the business model transformation, it also allows to kind of parallel process and get the rest of the organization gradually used to the idea of this is our new way of making money. Uh, and I think that's um, important because uh, this is not just, you know, about a product team making a product, but it's about the entire organization changing the way that they make money. So you've got the, you know, the sales force involved, for example, you've got uh, marketing thinking completely differently. If you're maintaining your legacy business, they're probably wondering, you know, am I going to become obsolete? What's going to happen to me? So those are things that we're typically working through. One organization that we were working with, uh, they were focused on delivering leadership training uh, to large organizations around the globe, uh, as well as a lot of government agencies. Mm -hmm. And they would come in and do these very customized uh, trainings and coaching and assessments. And everything was super custom to the needs of the leadership competency model that their clients used, um, the, the different types of roles that were going to be involved and so on. And they were interested in creating um, a subscription-based model. Uh, and they had a hypothesis that uh, there was a need at the kind of sub-C level, sub-VP, so call it, you know, director, senior director, uh, for leadership training that could be touching on the same competencies, but delivered in a more cost-effective way okay. Uh, so that they could roll it out to a larger market and that this is something that could be sold on a subscription basis. Uh, and they talked to a lot of their buyers about this and their buyers were heads of training and development. Uh, they all thought this was a great idea. Uh, they brought us in to do some uh, concept refinement and testing. And so we went out and uh, talked to users uh, so think about the directors, the senior directors who would be receiving this leadership training. Mm -hmm. And what we found out is that uh, they would never attend this. They they didn't see any value in it. Mm. Uh, they were like, the last thing I want is, you know, to log onto some platform and get some leadership training. Uh, and it was a really good lesson mm. for our client in the importance of uh, testing with not just your buyers, but also your users. Um, but also then back to my point earlier about the value of learning, we did uncover that what they wanted was they wanted to talk to each other, uh, and they mm. wanted more opportunities to do peer learning and mentorship. Uh, so it was an opportunity for this client to think differently about how could they do something at a larger scale, 
uh, still meet the need of how do you develop the leadership uh, competency gaps at that level, but in a completely different you know, solution than the one they had originally envisioned. So I really like that example. What I'm really wondering about is like that kind of learning cadence, that sort of learning cycle is something that, you know, anyone who's used to being in tech enabled product, like that's, it's sort of, that's run of the mill. That's normal, right? We're like, of course. Uh, but that could be, I mean, that obviously was a big learning for them. How did they, how did you all help them metabolize that learning and, and, you know, take a different set of actions going forward based on that? Yeah. Again, it was back to understanding what were their, their true like business objectives with this. Uh, and it was to, to not only grow their market, um, but to create something that was more recurring and more scalable. Uh, so we were looking still for unmet needs. Uh, for jobs to be done within the users when we were talking to them in, mm-hmm. in addition mm-hmm. to testing the concept. And that's where we uncovered this need of learning from each other, learning from peers, getting more peer mentorship. Um, so I, again, I think it's, you know, it's important when working with organizations who are trying to transform to be more product centric, more product friendly to focus on the, the positive components of rapid test and learn and prototyping. It's not just about killing ideas mm-hmm. more quickly, but it's about being able to discover things that perhaps you didn't know before mm. and then capitalizing on that learning. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. One of the things I'm wondering about is, you know, you talk about the the sort of the power shifts within an organization, right? Whether that's, uh, I think probably the most common one that people talk about is sort of the sales, sales and marketing power shift and how that trades off or is perceived to trade off uh, against product, whether or not that's accurate is, is maybe a different conversation. But I guess one of the other things I'm wondering about is is actually how this affects the staffing and funding. And let me let me give a little context of what I mean. So a company I was talking with recently is in the middle of such a transformation as we are describing here, and they are they they have product, but they're not really a tech enabled company. But they're really trying to make the shift to being a, a true modern tech-enabled product company, as, as we're describing here. And one of the things that came up as a real blocker in with internal to their organization is literally the way they structure and fund teams. And I'm curious if this is something you see a lot. In, in this particular case, they had almost like an internal agency model where they had these sort of business units funding sort of a centralized product and IT uh, organization. And, and so you almost had a literal... Uh, agency model internally where they said like, okay, we are funding this amount because we want these deliverables back as in so, which is the, it's, it's almost the, the antithesis of what we would like to see at product land, right? That's like literally predefining roadmaps. It's not at all about outcomes, et cetera, et cetera. The problem was how they structure the teams and, and fund teams. How, how do you see this playing out? I, I mean, I'm just citing one example. I'm sure you've seen many more. How do you see this play out and what do you do about it? Because that's like a thorny one. Yeah. And, and I think that the model you're talking about is one that we see early on in the transformation because they don't have the scale yet. Mm. Uh, so a centrally funded, like you said, agency model is, is, is a less expensive way to start to run down this, this, you know, strategy. Um, so I don't think it's unreasonable to begin with that. I think what's important that we try to do, um, is educate companies about the importance of evolving your organizational model as you become more mature. And 
your model will, and it sounds obvious when I say it out loud, but your model should evolve over time um, so that, you know, if, if your goal is to become a, you know, product centric or more, I, I would even say more product friendly organization, then product has to be the business. It can't be a shared service. Uh, but the initial path, maybe you start with it as a shared service, as an agency model, like you said, um, but then know that over time you're going to migrate that uh, back into the business because you have to be close to the um, to the users, to the buyers. Um, so that's that's typically what we do, and and I think people get that because they know again there's a fear, right? That's why I called the book Fearless. There's a fear of uncertainty. And so you want to do things incrementally. That doesn't mean that you need to do things slowly. Mm. So you can start with a small increment in terms of we're going to set up a central product organization, but then know that pretty quickly, that's going to be, that function is going to go back out to the business because that's where it needs to be. Yeah. So talk to me a little bit more about that distinction between incremental, basically the trade-off between incremental and how that's not the same as going slowly. And I'd love to hear you add a little, I'd love to understand a little more what the actual transition path looks like from, let's let's say step one is this sort of centralized product org to, and then, uh, you know, we'll say the end of the path or, or the obvious end of the path is where you have product fully embedded out in all the business units. They have their own product teams, et cetera, et cetera. How do you get from A to B? Yeah. So again, it, it depends on what your strategy is. Um, but let's say your strategy is to become really much more product centric than you are. Okay. Um, so starting with a product as a shared service, and I hate like even saying that just rubs me the wrong way, but that's what we'll call it. Okay. Um, you start with that because it's a one, it's not only less upfront investment, but it's also easier. Um, to ensure that you are kind of setting up a way of doing product when it's just one team uh, and and creating kind of that level of excellence before distributing out in the business. Then what typically happens, you launch some products, uh, they're doing well, they're um, going up their maturity curve. Those then make sense to be put out in the business um, where you've got product managers, um, you're continuing to improve upon the product, but it's less about new product innovation and it's more about mature product management. And that's a good time to go to a hybrid model. And then eventually you want to move new product innovation out to the business as well. But that's that's a common migration that we see. How long does that take? Because I, <laughs> I, I could see that. I don't know. I, I, I should just stop there. How long does that take? And how, to, you know, because I think people probably have very different numbers listening in their mind, listening to you say that. It, it depends. So I would say a large, over half of our clients who are successful uh, are accelerating their strategy through acquisition. Okay. And that... Uh, can rapidly shorten the time frame for this. If you are trying to do it on your own, this could take a decade. Mm. But if you are doing this through acquisition, you can you can significantly shrink it. Mm. Okay, so let's explore that a little bit because you know, kind of the third pillar we wanted to explore here was this idea of the the change management aspect. 
And an acquisition seems like about as good of an entry into that topic as, as one I can think of because you could buy the best product company in the world and then you still have the integration problem uh, at the cultural level. And, you know, I don't know the numbers, but I know that most acquisitions don't quite work out the way people hoped. And I have been told anecdotally that usually it's this sort of cultural piece, the integration piece. So let's unpack that a little bit. Talk to me about this. So, so how do you do this? I guess, you know, maybe address it from two sides. How do you do it well? And what are the traps people fall into that, you know, kind of kills it from, from working the way yeah. they want? So, Andrew, I think the first thing is to understand what are all the reasons why you're acquiring the company? Is, is this just to improve total shareholder return? Or is it to accelerate your transformation? Hmm. Uh, because if there are things like accelerating the transformation that are a real part of the strategy, then you need to ask yourself, well, how am I going to measure that? How am I going to account for that? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there may be an acquisition that is not as financially successful as we think it should be, but it has a knock-on effect of accelerating the transformation in the rest of the organization. Um, so I think that's that's important to just be clear about at the beginning is what is the purpose of this acquisition? Um, you know, and there are other reasons, you know, competitive reasons why you might also be acquiring a company that aren't going to show up immediately in TSR. Um, so that's that's the first thing. And then the second thing is, um, is this a product that is going to be sold alongside or in conjunction with um, our current legacy business? Or is this a completely you know, greenfield uh, opportunity for us? If it's a going to be a product that's going to be sold alongside. So again, our example, working with services companies, they may be transitioning from services to what we call bundled solutions, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. where perhaps there's a, you know, a data component that's bundled into the services. There's a tech component that serves as a maintenance product, for example, something like that. That is much more important. In those cases, it's much more important to get the integration right because you won't have adoption of the product organization of the product into the bundled solution if you don't get the integration right. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. So I think that that's another thing to be, you know, really uh, think through is how is this going to be brought to market and what's the impact on our existing business? And then the third one is addressing, just like you would if you weren't uh, uh, transforming the organization through an acquisition, is addressing the impact on everyone else. Uh, and again, there's a lot of fear, fear of uncertainty, fear of obsolescence, um, fear of saying no, fear of championing a feel, failed product uh, that has to be brought to the surface and has to be addressed by leaders uh, in order for any type of change to be successful, whether or not that change is being accelerated through an acquisition or uh, being done organically by building a movement. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And, and fear is, is really what I wanted to unpack next. So as you said, it has to be spoken to, it has to be named, has to be, to be brought forward and, and worked through. I'm curious, what have you seen be most effective in doing that? Because I, I, of course, it's somewhat context dependent and what the fears are will shape it. But, you know, I'm curious if, if there are kind of a top one or two practices that a leader listening to this could could put into place if they are sensing that fear within their operating environment. Like, what can they actually do? Yeah. So the first one is to model 
uh, fearlessness as a leader. And that includes, like you said, naming it. These are the things I'm afraid of. But this is how I'm working through the fear. Uh, and there's um, like a cute little acronym that we've created for for the companies that we work with called LEAP. Uh, and the L stands for listen to your intuition. Uh, the E stands for expect less than perfect. The A is ask for help. And the P is practice gratitude. Mm. Uh, and these are very simple mainstream um wellness, mental health practices. Yep. Yep. That when they're modeled by leaders and again, not just, you know, talked about, but actually modeled in their behavior, uh, can can start to shift an organization. Again, it doesn't happen overnight. Uh, if you're trying to build a movement, again, like I said, it could take a decade. But that's where it starts. Um, so that's the first thing is that that leadership behavior. And then the second one is when we talk about organizational change and culture change, we forget that this isn't just about naming behaviors, practicing behaviors, but it's making sure that the entire operating model is set up to support those behaviors. So you brought up the point about org structure. You brought up the point about, you know, funding team levels. Uh, we talked about forecasts and measures and incentives, uh, competency models, all of those things will need to be updated hmm. to reflect mm -hmm. the new behaviors that you want to see in the organization. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, I'm trying to understand what that, I'm just trying to put myself in the shoes of, of some of the folks I've, I've spoken with lately and try to see, okay, where would they, like, where do people get tripped up with this? You know, what, what's the thing that they, they just overlook? Not for, you know, they have the best of intentions, but like, where, yeah, where do people stumble? Yeah, I think the first one is assuming if we teach everybody the right process and best practices in product discovery and management and innovation, that they will change their behavior. Mm, okay. And that is simply not true. We're mm -hmm. humans. Yep. Uh, and uh, we behave in seemingly irrational ways, I would argue, <laughs> primarily driven by fear. Mm -hmm. uh, and and so, you know, learning best practices, having a great process uh, doesn't address that. Um, so I think that's the first place. I think the second one is just assuming if you bring in the right people and the right skills that you will be successful. Um, and that's what I was alluding to when I talked about um, integrating the acquisition. It's not just about um, how is this acquisition going to help us accelerate in our product strategy? But it's how are we going to bring the rest of the organization along and help them feel like they are uh, an important part of the shift and that they're not being marginalized um, and that they can change their behavior, but you know they need to change their behavior in order for us to be successful. So I am fascinated by the topic you've opened up here. Talking about behavior change, I mean, this, I agree with you, this is where this whole thing lives and dies, right? And we're speaking about organizational behavior change, which is, you know, if individual behavior change is hard, right? Like try, you know, cutting your bad habits and adding your good ones, right? We know that's hard. Doing it at an organizational level is exponentially harder. I'm so curious if there's like, yeah, how do you do that? That, that just feels like that's the, that's like the heart of this thing. And I, I would love to hear how you make this actually happen. Yeah. So again, I think it starts with getting really honest about what is required. Hmm. 
And what I keep coming back to is we have to acknowledge that people are really afraid. Mm-hmm. And and they're not just afraid of change. That's, I think, overly simplistic. Mm-hmm. Um, they're afraid of losing their the things that have defined their personal worthiness and mm-hmm. value. Mm-hmm. So you're talking about things that cut to the core of of people and and to to change that again that's I, the leap acronym that we use you know it's it's simple but i think it's important because it starts with listening to your intuition getting really in touch with that core inner wisdom that we all have quieting the mind quieting the chatter um, so that we can really hear what what is going to make the difference in this moment, what's going to help me connect with that person, what is going to, what's the right answer for the business, for the strategy, and getting back to a place where we trust that inner wisdom, I think, is is a very, very critical part of this. Mm. And so, and again, if you look at the research, the, the companies and the leaders who have made space for mindfulness practices within their organizations are better equipped to change, um, better equipped to deal with volatility. And the, the ones that haven't, which, you know, I would say is, is most of corporate America, mm-hmm. um, really do struggle with this. And that's why this has been, you know, incredibly hard for a lot of organizations, why there's so many books on change management. Um, I think with becoming, you know, a product-centric organization, it's really about shifting behavior from always having to be right, knowing the right answer, taking a long time to make decisions, mm-hmm. uh, not being able to say no, kind of assuming everything is a zero-sum game, to a much more expansive way of thinking. Yeah, that's beautifully said. I'm so fascinated by these topics and I feel like we could talk for literally hours on them. Um, one question, I'm just trying to come up with some actionable takeaways, honestly, for myself, because I want to go do some more homework on this. What, you know, if I could go read like one book on change management that, that, you know, based on everything you've seen is actually going to help me affect change in an org, like, is there one that you would recommend? One of my favorite ones, or many that I would recommend. As a quick aside, in addition to your own, yeah. obviously. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, and mine is is very specific to the needs of, you know, organizations who are undergoing this particular type of product transformation. But I think one of the best overall change management organizations is Amy Edmondson's mm. uh, Fearless Organization. And it's really what inspired me, where she talks about the importance of psychological safety. Um, because again, um, change requires uncertainty. If we don't feel safe, we won't go do something uncertain. Mm-hmm. If we aren't in touch with our inner wisdom, we won't go do something uncertain. Uh, if we uh, don't think that we can make the pie bigger, then we won't commit resources to something where the payoff is uncertain. Um, but if we can create a sense of safety, expansive thinking, um, grounded in our inner truths and wisdom, then we're much more likely to not only change, but to take the risks required in order to be successful. No, thank you for that. And, and 
Big shout out to Amy Edmondson. Thanks. It's one of my favorite, uh, actually, earlier guests on this show. Uh, episode number nine that everyone, uh, I will link to that in the show notes and people should definitely go check it out. She is such a boss. Uh, so I'm so glad you you named her work. I'm a huge fan. Um, so, you know, I want to start to close out this conversation with a couple of rapid fire questions and, and you know, just whatever comes to mind. Uh, you know, I'd love to hear where it goes. So I'm curious, you know, it's one of the things that I've learned over the years is that it's the questions we ask ourselves that shape how we think and therefore what we do and then, you know, what happens in our lives. And so I'm curious, is there a question you would have the listener start asking themselves that you think would make a big difference for them? Yeah. What does your gut tell you? Hmm. What is your gut telling you in this moment? Okay. I like it. Now, moving on from that, in terms of your own navigating of these waters, is there a certain practice that's helped you to kind of keep an even keel amidst all the volatility, the uncertainty, the waves of change? Yeah. So uh, I don't know if I mentioned this earlier, but I'm a certified yoga teacher. Hmm. Uh, I teach a yoga class every Tuesday morning and I practice yoga almost daily. So um, what kind? I met uh, Ashtanga yoga. Okay. Uh, I, and I call it my, my meditation and movement. So very, very important for me. Love it. Love it. I'm, I'm uh, uh, trying to get into yoga more. So uh, I'm very deep into meditation already, but yoga, I feel like is next on the list. So it's, it's great encouragement. Um, so following on the, the former question, is there a you know, bit of homework you would give me or another leader listening to this to, to actually take action on these ideas, you know, put them into practice? Like, what's the starting point for someone who's like, okay, I hear you, Aisha, a little overwhelmed here. Where do I start? Yeah, name your fears. Uh, it, it is a very common, uh, I think, technique. I mean, you, you said, you know, name it, and we say name it to tame it. What are all the things that you're afraid of? Uh, and not just, again, the obvious ones like fear of change, fear of losing money, but fear of what people might think mm. of you, uh, fear uh, that perhaps you're not everything you thought you were, mm. right? So really getting to those like fears around personal worthiness and value and um, fear of being unloved. Uh, I think it's so important to to try to take an inventory of what those fears might be. Um, because once we get them out on paper, we often realize, okay, uh, you know, I can manage these in the moment. This is not that bad, but when we're denying our fear, it's really hard to change. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Aisha, this has been a fascinating conversation. I thank you for your time and for sharing your wisdom with us. So first of all, thank you for being here and for, for everything you've shared with us. Uh, everybody, please go check out the new book, Fearless and Aisha, is there anything you'd love to leave the listeners with? And, and where can people find you online if they'd like to follow up? Yeah, no, this has been my sincere pleasure, Andrew. Thanks for having me. Best place to, to follow up is LinkedIn. Uh, it's Aisha Tierney Armstrong. Tierney's my, my maiden name, uh, but that's the best place to reach out. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for being here, Aisha, and congratulations on the new book. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this, I'd be so grateful if you could do me a favor and take about 25 seconds to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That helps me reach way more listeners and it also helps me bring you more great guests. As always, please feel free to reach out to me anytime at connect at makethingsthatmatter.com. And until next time, my friends, leave them better than you found them. See you out there.